Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live, multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Apologies for the late release of the podcast. I got involved in a rather in-depth technical project uh, yesterday. It it was. It's interesting. Everybody wants to get all of their stuff done for the New Year's. It's it's fascinating to me. There's really nothing, technically speaking, there's no technical advantage in doing something on January 1st. And yet everybody thinks it just seems to make sense for most businesses to do everything at the start of the new year. And so December is a busy time for us tearing old networks out and putting new stuff in. And so we actually were able to recreate a network and get a site-to-site VPN tunnel uh, going in under an hour, and I'm going to talk about that. But doing that left me unable to do the show last night, and so we postponed it till tonight, but we're here. The Pine Phone is this year's, well, last year, I guess, as it were now, unexpected, unsung hero. Drew DeVault, who we've had on the show before, has written a absolutely stellar review of the Pine Phone, and it's a review that... If you were kind of on the fence or you weren't really sure, you didn't understand what the value of the Pine Phone is, Drew is here to set you straight. So you can find the full review at DrewDevault.com. We'll have it linked in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But Drew writes that the GPU is reasonably fast. Open source uh, Lima driver support for GLES V2. He says, I've been wa- waiting for this phone for years and years and years. I've been hoping that someone would make a phone whose hardware was compatible with upstream Linux drivers and could theoretically be used as a daily driver, if only the software up to snuff. Now, I want to stop here and I want to clarify something because Drew really understands this very well. And it's something that I've alluded to on the program before. What Linux is at the end of the day capable of and what a given device is capable of and what it's currently doing are two entirely separate things. And as Linux users, we often get confused by those two things. Because I can't execute Adobe Lightroom on my Linux box without running some sort of transition layer or virtual machine, we just assume that Lightroom can't run on Linux. And that's not entirely true. There are, certainly there are, there are some programmatic things that, that pose problems for executing PL code on Linux. But for the most part, it is a choice of the designer. It's a choice of the software vendor not to put the effort in to make that code compatible with Linux. And there's nothing that natively stops Linux from working. And so what's interesting about the Pine phone, they did not build these devices for people to purchase at Best Buy. They didn't purchase, they didn't build these devices for people to order online and get home. And then they, they just have a phone and so much of today's generation. In fact, so much of the past decades generation has been brought up to see technology as what it does for them, not what they can do with it. And it's something that I have found actually fairly frustrating. When I grew up, I 
spent a lot of time in Radio Shack purchasing LEDs and triple five circuits and capacitors and resistors and little buzzers and stuff like that and assembling them all together. And you develop a working knowledge of how electronics work. And the Pine Phone is one of the few devices that I've seen in a long, long time that is designed from the ground up and was built with the expressed purpose of being played with. And Drew understands this. And so when he got the phone, he says flat out, hey, I took it out of the box. I turned it on. And the only thing that was there was like a crappy Android loader uh, with some like very basic boot instructions. And obviously there was no actual operating system. And so the phone just boot loops. That's out of the box. This is how you buy the thing. And there's going to be a lot of people that are listening to this program that are like, all right, that's it. I'm out. And I would encourage you to hold on. I would encourage you to have some patience and I would encourage you to maybe give this a shot. Go ahead and order a Pine phone and be willing to sit through and, and walk through the instructions to flash an operating system on there. Because I tell you what, to me, it is fairly frustrating that when we go into the cell phone shops of today and we go into Best Buy or you go online to Amazon, you order yourself a phone, you don't have administrative access to that phone. The company who manufactured the phone has administrative access, and they'll decide what apps you can put on there, what stores you can get access to, what you can do with it. That doesn't really feel like I own the phone. It kind of feels like I'm leasing it or I'm renting it. Quote from Drew. The modem is supported by Ophono, which is a telephony daemon based on DBus. However, I understand that we can just open dev TTY USB 1 and talk to the modem ourselves. And I may just write a program that does this. Using Ophono, I have successfully spun up LTE Internet, sent and received SMS messages, and placed and answered the phone calls, though the last time without working audio. A friend from KDE is working on this, and the rumor has it that a call has been successfully placed. I have not a success with MMS, but I think it's possible. Wi-Fi works all of this with zero blobs and a kernel, which is admittedly pretty heavily patched but open source and making its way upstream. The important thing here, what Drew is trying to get across is that this is a clunky device. It's not ready for mainstream. It's not something that you can just pull out of the box and use, but all of the basic functionality is there. And this is a phone that sells for less than $200 and is available to anybody. They can go to the site and just order it. And you can put whatever software you want on there. If you want to try out UbiPorts, this would be a great device to pair with it. If you want to try Sailfish OS, this would be a great device to pair with it. And there was actually a new one, and I'll see if I can dig it up. I don't have it uh, in my notes in front of me, but there is a uh, post-market OS is the operating system that Drew was playing with on here. And I'd not heard of post-market OS, but it is a real Linux distribution specifically for phones and other mobile devices. And the rumor has it that post-market OS is what is actually going to be shipping on the Pine phone if and when they decide to ship an operating system with it. And I thought that was an interesting choice. I also thought it was interesting that this has not come across my radar before as somebody who has actively explored alternative, alternative operating systems on the phone. Listen, I am the general market for this device. I am the guy that wants a actual Linux PC in my pocket because for the most part, I find that the things that I can do on my Linux PC are far more powerful and far more capable and I have a more st streamlined workflow on my laptop than I do on a mobile device. And I think if you're coming from an Android or an iOS device, I think this journey is going to be much harder because the world has kind of transitioned into a mobile 
first space. When you go to websites now, they're designed primarily with mobile in mind. When you deal with shopping, it's designed primarily with mobile. There are certain stores that only allow participation of coupons and reward points um, and account management through a mobile app. And so the ability to compete in that space is huge. But one of the things I said on Destination Linux last week during our prediction episode, and I stand by it, I believe that 2020 is going to be the time when some of these Internet of Things and the things that are connected to the Internet, start. it starts to swing the other way. And it goes from convenience to some really serious security stories that I think are, are, are going to start to come out because everybody is do everybody is trying to compete in this space and nobody is doing it particularly well you see android tablets that people purchase for restaurant reward points that they never update they just plug in set them out in the front they connect them right to their internal wi-fi and then they just leave them there for years i was working with a uh, medical company that gives out little android cell phones that they pair to an implanted medical device and it talks to it and the, the stupid android device is running 4.0 i was at a i was at another client um, that i want to get into the exact business model but safe to say you probably use their services or products and they had some ancient android android 3 android 4 something like that running on their little uh, symbol uh, 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 I don't know what you want to call it, portable computer things that they carry around. This is terrifying. And the problem is that up until recently, there has been no third alternative in the mobile sphere. If you are a manufacturer of medical devices and your market is not mobile phones, you could care less what operating system people run on their mobile phones or what brand people buy. You're in the business of making medical stuff. If that's you and you need a device that you can pair to this thing so that you can send it home with patients, it becomes problematic to use something like iOS because when you start iOS up, you have to tie it to an iOS account and you have to have, there's no alternative ROMs or flashing or user interfaces. It's basically, you know, an iPhone or an an iOS device that you're going to custom install some software on. With Android, they provide a tremendous amount of flexibility. And yes, Verizon Wireless and AT&T and all the other big name manufacturers or big name phone providers have found a way to introduce their crappy version of an Android OS with their pre-installed apps and or their pre-installed services. I get that. And I understand why that's a problem. And I do understand the position of people that say, well, this is where Android is problematic because it is literally the catch all for mobile operating systems. But at the same time. There is a definitive need in the industry to have something that can be customized to specific needs. And the fact that Windows is so customizable, the fact that Android is so customizable, is why you often see those two things uh, making their way into um, appliance-like devices. And what's interesting about that is it's one of the few things we got right on Linux. One of the few things that we've gotten right from the beginning with Linux is that it is a very modular operating system. It can be built into anything you want it to be built into. And so as I'm looking out over the mobile, the, 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 um, the mobile market, the vast majority of people that are using Android for these one-off purposes are not particularly happy with them. I was working with a restaurant. This is a couple months ago and they had an Android based POS. Now the POS is totally cloud uh, oriented, you know, all the servers and all the backend processing and the, the credit card, all that stuff is backend and in the cloud. So it's all running on servers, probably running on Linux. 
the only thing that actually has to function right is this app has to open up on an Android tablet and it has to connect to Wi-Fi and then reach out back home to the server. Well, guess what doesn't work? That Android tablet crashes constantly or the app that opens up doesn't run properly. They tried running a similar app on iOS, ran fantastically. The problem was you couldn't deploy 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 of these iPads in the small little, uh, in the small little restaurant. They were just running out of, of one, you, they didn't want to spend the eight, nine hundred dollars per tablet to do that. But two, the actual paying somebody to actually set all this stuff up. There's no there's no central management of this, these kinds of things. Right. And so the the products that are being shoehorned into service today are not really built for and they're not really built for scale. And they're, they they don't have the kind of features that that you would want in mind. And that's where I think that's where I think devices like the Pine phone play a role. That's where I think UbiPorts and Sailfish OS play a role. Because if you take Sailfish OS, if you take UbiPorts, if, uh, if you take, uh, what was, a what was the, um, what was this other software? Postmarket OS. If you take any of those and you customize them and make them into what it is that you need for your business. Now, all of a sudden you have a custom tailored device with custom tailored software specifically designed to run whatever it is you want to run. And we saw this sort of kind of take shape and sort of kind of take off with WebOS, right? HP buys out Palm. HP then inherits WebOS and they try to, you know, rebrand it and kind of use it. And I still to this day think WebOS was one of the most fantastic user interfaces out there. They started putting them on TVs. People loved it. It was great. It was an operating system that you could load on TVs. What are you finding on TVs nowadays? Android. All of the little cheapo boxes you buy on Amazon run Android TV. The NVIDIA Shield runs Android TV. And so it's essentially a race between the Rokus and the Fire Sticks in the world, the Apple TVs of the world, and Android TV. So what happens when we introduce a third player into the market? The problem up until now, and Drew points this out in his article, there's been no hardware to pair it with. So if you're interested, if you're a third-party manufacturer and you manufacture UbiPorts, and let's say, for example, you at uh, Verizon or you at AT&T or you at mom and pop cell phone shop wanted to carry a third choice for operating system. What where are you going to buy product? Where are you going to buy phones that you can have preloaded? Because let's face it, people are not going to walk into a cell phone store, purchase a cell phone and then take it home and go download an operating system and flash it onto it. It's not something that normal people do. I mean, you and I might do it, but normal people don't do things like that. I don't think. And so you need a place that you can go and just purchase a bundled set, the hardware that comes with the software. And the problem is up until now, nobody has really made hardware specifically for third party operating systems. If you make hardware, you're either making it for Android and or you're making it for iOS or there's some you know custom thing that's out there, but th there's never been a phone that was specifically designed to be flashed. There's never been a smartwatch for that example, for that matter, that has been designed to be flashed. And that's exactly what Pine Phone is doing. So the question put before us was, is it any good? And how do we know? Because I'm not a developer. So I may have pre I may have pre-ordered the Braveheart edition. I may have pre and I actually my, my Pine Pro isn't here yet either. Uh, I may have ordered those things. But I have no way of actually using them because I'm not a developer and I don't know what thing to put on there. And if it were me, I'd probably put UbiPorts or, or Sailfish OS. So what's interesting uh, about this article that Drew wrote 
is he went through and actually dug through the technical specifications. What kind of hardware exists inside of this device? And what can you do, more importantly, with that hardware available? And what he found was, when you actually step through it, yes, you have to drop down to a command line terminal and, and execute some archaic uh, you know, syntax, but you're able to talk to these radios and you're able to make them perform. So the question then is just a matter of can we create a user experience and user environment that is welcoming and friendly to people that want to try out the, the, the Pine phone. And so he has put together a very basic user interface and he has a video up on his site that demonstrates it working with a little pullout bar and a little, a little grid thing that you can launch and, 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 and move stuff. But he's saying that the actual performance of the hardware is fantastic and works really, really well. He says, of course, no one wants to place phone calls by typing a lengthy command into their ter terminal. But the point here, he's not trying to prove that this is a device that anybody c can buy. In fact, he specifically points out there's maybe a few dozen people in the world that he thinks this phone is appropriate for. But my, my I guess, call to you or my suggestion, uh, my hope is that people out there that are listening to this episode and have been paying attention to the hard work that pine has done because this is a company that has been open and honest since the since the day they released their first couple products and i've had a chance to put my hand on the original pine book i have ordered the pine book pro as well as the 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 pine phone braveheart edition and if i can find a place to buy the pine walk pine time i'm going to do that as well this is a company that deserves admiration and respect and frankly deserves people to go out and buy their products and hopefully that will send a, a strong message of thank you, a strong message of appreciation and a strong message of, hey, we'll continue to make more of, of these phones that don't necessarily have operating systems on it. They're designed from the ground up for you to be able to put what you want on there. And yeah, I would like it if we got to a point where PinePhone teamed up with UbiPorts or heck, team, teamed up with any mobile operating system that they thought best fit their phone so that I could purchase a open source native Linux phone and just pull it out of the box and start using it. And if that if that ever got to a point where I could use a daily driver, I think that would be great. But I am perfectly fine having companion-style devices. I am perfectly fine carrying an Android phone or an iOS phone to use as a quote-unquote daily driver to handle the interfacing with the rest of the world. I don't mind carrying a second device that I can use for me because there is value in having a a belief in privacy and security and trust in the device itself. And then I can begin to load data and, and, and other valuable things on there because I trust it's going to be there and I trust that it's not going to go anywhere. And so all this to say a huge thank you and a great job to the Pine uh, folks for the Pine phone and also a huge thanks to Drew DeVault for his awesome write-up. I'm telling you, you go and read this review and if there's anybody out there that is saying to themselves, Hey, that just wouldn't be for Pine Phone probably isn't for me. I think if you read through there, what you'll find is if you're willing, if you're willing to spend a little bit of time and play with a project, this might be exactly what you do. Heck, order it on the weekend or get it delivered and and spend the weekend and, and flash the thing with the kids and turn it into a family thing and, and teach them about how real nerds can take technology and build something with it rather than just purchasing technology and expecting technology to do something for them. Get open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at com. That's how you can become a part of the program. Make your voice heard. I 
have talked, uh, I've gotten the question a couple of times, what router do you recommend? And I've up until now, I have always recommended Microtech, and I still do. I think they're a really solid router. They're used in a lot of uh, wireless ISPs. But I have been playing with the uh, the Unify security gateway a little bit more as of late. And the reason is, and the only reason is, because it is nice that everything is managed in one central place. So for smaller networks, if you have a network and your network needs are, oh, I don't know, I need to forward two or three different ports and I need Wi-Fi to be up and I need to be able to access the Internet. If that's the extent of your networking needs, then the Unify Security Gateway is not necessarily a bad way to go. Um, some of the more, adv- quote unquote, advanced features, and I use that term loosely, like DNS, are not included. If you want to manually map a DNS entry, you have to edit a JSON file in order to do that. And so I think there's there's quite a bit of shortcomings uh, with the Unify Security Gateway, and, and there's a reason that I wouldn't recommend it in any very large deployment. But it did save my bacon this week, and so I thought... Uh, it's time for me to eat a little bit of crow and just acknowledge where these things are particularly useful. So situation, client has a couple of machines that they they wanted to replace, so they purchased new computers, and the software vendor that they use was going to remote into these computers and set up their software. Well, the security gateway that they currently had uh, is managed by a company who they either can't get a hold of or when they can get a hold of them, they're not overly helpful in getting anything done. And so we tried that route for a couple of weeks, couldn't get anywhere. And eventually I said, all right, we're just going to show up and we'll, we'll make everything work. We'll figure something out. And so we got there and called the company, said, okay, we're going to do this install we talked to you about. You said you were going to be able to let them in, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here's the things that we need changed. And we spend 25 minutes. We're not getting anywhere. So now the software vendor is getting upset because they had an appointment. They were ready to, to get working and they can't because they're not able to get remoted in. So I went out to the truck and I said, all right, well, I'm just going to go grab uh, and, and just I'm essentially going to duplicate their network, get everything up and running. Then that way we can at least get remoted into the computer and get that software process. And then we can go back and figure out the rest later. So I go and I grabbed a couple of USGs. And one of the things about this particular client deployment is there is a site to site tunnel. And I in order to get the software to work correctly, I had to recreate that site to site tunnel. So I drove to location number one, plugged the, the, the gateway in, drove to location number two, plugged the gateway in, adopted him in the controller, and uh, went to look up the documentation on how to do a site-to-site VPN tunnel in, uh, in Ubiquiti, with a Ubiquiti USG. Well, the, the documentation was relatively sparse. It just said click on networks and click create site-to-site VPN tunnel. I thought, okay, but how do I choose, you know, what kind of tunnel is it? Is it an L2TP tunnel? Is it, you know, is it a PP, you know, PPTP? Uh, what, what are we using here? And so I go and, and, and look, and sure enough, not only does it allow you to create the site-to-site tunnel, when you click on create the site-to-site tunnel, it asks you, hey, which other site in this Unify controller are you creating the site-to-site tunnel with? I selected that, I clicked OK, and in about, I don't know, nine seconds, I went from two brand new USGs to a completely configured site-to-site VPN tunnel that was up and working and handling traffic. And I mean, and this took... Like, less than 15 seconds. I mean, it was insane. So, when Unify incorporates a feature, or when they do something, they tend to do it really, really well. And this is why we have stuck with our access points for so long, because it makes managing access points ridiculously easy, and I get enterprise-level features that I would get from Cisco or Ruckus at eight, nine. Hundred dollars an access point or $1,000 an access point, and I get those same, that same functionality, and I get those same features for like $200. 
And so and Unify is just a fantastic bang for the buck. And while I don't have a lot of uses for their security gateway, I now expand my if you need to get on the Internet and have a couple of access points working too. Hey, if you have a small business and you might want to access that small business from home and you wanted a site to site VPN tunnel or if you had two branch offices. You want both of those branch offices to be able to connect back to the central office. And this is a really easy way to do this, to put this into perspective for you. If I was doing this on Microtech and I had three sites and I was going to create a site-to-site tunnel through all of them, and typically I try to do it in such a way where that if one site goes down, it doesn't take all of them down, which certainly is not the case with the USGs, but it would probably take me somewhere between 30 minutes and an hour to get that all set up and tested and working properly. And so to have that up and running in like 15 seconds flat from Unify says a lot about the direction that Unify is going. And because all of their all of their features and functionality are primarily software based, they don't deprecate hardware very often at all. I think they've deprecated one of the UAPs, the original Square UAPs, and I'm not sure they've ever deprecated a a, a security gateway. I think even the I think the ones that some of the ones that we have are still first generation. They're still getting updates. And so as long as and the updates are free. So you can go and download, set up a Debian box, set up an Ubuntu box, download the Deb, install it, and now you have the full-on controller software running, and as long as you keep that up to date, it will keep all of your devices up to date. And so as a managed service provider where we have hundreds of thousands of individual endpoints that we have to manage, having that all-in-one dashboard and all of the updates handing out, you know, pushing updates to all of the devices point blank is phenomenal. And it is, is a massive tool. So if I, I want to back off just a little bit on my criticism of the USG, there's still plenty to go around. But I do think that there are, it's beginning to approach the point where I think a lot of small businesses could start to take advantage of this. And if, if they start to introduce some of those features like DNS, um, the other thing that I found I just can't believe is not a function or a feature inside of, of the Unify system, because it exists on every other security gateway, is the ability to set, set static IP addresses outside of the subnet. So let's say I'm handing out addresses 10.1.0.10, uh, you know, and it's a slash 16, whatever, right? I, I should be able to hand out an address 192.168.0.5. And the reason for that is when you're migrating from one subnet to another and you're, you're re-IPing a, you know, a, a, a business, it's, it can be very advantageous sometimes to assign the old IP address so that the device can then start talking again to whatever the other device is that you need it to talk to for a brief time until you can make the configuration changeover. And we were dealing with the geothermal system and had a security gateway and ran into that exact problem. And I, my, the laptop couldn't talk to the, the, uh, the, the geothermal controller because they were on the wrong subnet. And I couldn't actually talk to the geothermal controller to change the IP address. So the only way to set the IP address was through DHCP. And I, I didn't have – and, I, and I, I couldn't set it to the uh, – bring it on to the, the, the new subnet and make it talk to the new controller. And I would have been able to do that with a Microtech or a Cisco or a Marikai or – any of the other ones. So I, I I think a little room to go, but they are certainly making progress. They're working their way back in my book. This is from embeddeduse.com, safeguarding the LGPL, the future of QT. The foundation has four board members, two from KDE and two from the QT company. If there is a tie in a vote, the, Q, the KDE members decide. In other words, the KDE board members 
have veto power. You find the software license agreement and SLA between the KDE Free QT Foundation and the QT Company in the show notes over at podcast.asknoahshow.com if you want to reference it. But the interesting thing about this SLA is, first of all, it has been modified with every major release, QT 2.0, QT 3.x, QT 4.x, QT 5.x. So it's not surprising that as QT 6.x is just uh, just a little less than a year away, the QT company wants some changes. Now, the SLA requires the QT company to release at least one minor or major QT version every 12 calendar months. It forbids the QT company to keep changes or extensions of the QT free edition closed for more than 12 months. Contributions to the QT must also be published within 12 months. Here's why this article caught my eye. A few weeks ago, I was having a discussion with somebody Maybe it was on this program with Ryan. I can't remember. But we were talking about software licensing. And I said, one of the things I think is problematic in the Linux software licensing world is that it becomes difficult for Linux to get and stay ahead. Every time Linux has a major win and we write some code or we release a piece of software or we have a very talented developer or a good idea set that comes up in Linux and somebody does something really, really cool, very quickly that becomes something that is either ported directly to another operating system or they wrap it in such a way that you don't know that you're using Linux. So let me give you an example. Proxmox is something I, I had a chance to play with in the, the, the past week and I was really, I was breaking into a Proxmox service what I was doing. But one of the things that you notice with Proxmox is it takes it takes Linux virtualization and essentially boils it down into a web browser. And the nice thing about that, if you're a Windows user or a Mac user, is you can take advantage of all of the advanced things that Linux can do, and you don't ever actually really need to learn Linux. As long as you can flash an ISO onto a flash drive, as long as you can answer your name and the city you live in, you can set up a, a Proxmox box, or you can set up a FreeNAS box, or you can set up a Unify controller. All of those things run in the background on Linux, but don't really require any Linux-y knowledge to be able to maintain. It doesn't really require any experiencing Linux. It'd be the same as saying I go to Amazon.com every day, so I use Linux. We don't really use Amazon.com. You use a, a web server that's based on Linux. And so that has made it very difficult for Linux to get ahead. And so we get really cool, awesome things that, that I don't think most professionals could go back to living without. Things like FFmpeg and things like uh, you know Wireshark. We have those open source tools available to us on Linux, but the problem is they also exist on every other operating system because anything that is particular that is terribly useful gets moved over. And I was having a discussion again. I can't remember exactly with whom, but we were talking about enforcement mechanisms. What can you do to try to keep a advantage? Because anything you do to try to keep an advantage to where you're preventing somebody from porting it to another operating system by the very nature of you preventing what they can or cannot do, you're restricting their freedom to use that software. And and I think the vast majority of us would say that's not right. So this SLA is interesting because it attacks the same problem in a slightly different way. The So as I say, the, the SLA requires them to release one minor or major QT version every 12 calendar months. Now, it forbids the QT company from... Keeping changes or extensions to the QT edition 
closed for more than 12 months, and contributions to QT must also be published within 12 months. If the QT company fails to comply with any of those conditions, then the foundation has the right to release the QT free version under the BSD license. Translation. You are going to continue to work on this thing and you are going to make sure, just like any other software project, that you're going to release updates to this in this time period. If you don't do that, we are going to relicense the whole thing under the BSD license. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, no, I'm not a licensing junkie. What is the BSD license? And I'm not either, but the BSD license essentially allows any company to do whatever they want with QT. Any group, any company, any any, any, any collection of uh, individual people, they could even sell QT under their own terms. And so it it, it gives a strong motivation to stay within the, the, the terms of this SLA. the BSD, From the article, the BSD threat is a strong guarantee that QT will stay free and open source and that it will not get regular significant, and that it will continue to get regular significant updates. This is a really creative, fantastic way to solve the problem that, uh, that, I've, that, I, that I, I've, I've mentioned before. The nonprofit KDE Free QT Foundation ensures that QT Essentials and many QT add-ons remain available under the LGPL V3 and that most of the QT tools fall under GPL V3. They also ensure that QT Free Edition gets new features every year. Many of us save money from using the QT Free Edition, so let's donate some of the money to the foundation, a part of KDE, so that it can so that we can enjoy our freedoms for many years to come. Thanks to the foundation for their important work. And so we'll have a link to you for you in the show notes on how you can donate to the foundation, something that I think is very important uh, for us to do. Again, and I've talked about this in the program, we need to make sure that we are financially compensating uh, play, you know, uh, individuals that are writing open source tools, or they're going to stop writing open source tools and they're going to go over to the proprietary market. Do you know why people, so many more people work in the proprietary world than the open source world? Because they make $200,000 a year plus if they're doing it for Microsoft or Amazon or whatever. They come over to do it for an open source project and they're lucky if somebody leaves 25 bucks, you know, in the, in, in, in a Patreon account. And we saw that, I don't, we didn't talk about it on this show, but Fuse for Mac OS, an open source library is now co- closed source and it's commercially licensed. And the truth is the maintainer did not make that decision because he values closed source software more than open source. He doesn't even make that decision because he needs the money per se. It's a principle to him. It's he doesn't want to volunteer his time and work for free and he shouldn't. And he shouldn't. It's one thing to say that when you pay for software, when you the software that you use should have the source code available and should be licensed under the GPL so that if this if the maintainer or if the publisher decides to do something unscrupulous or just goes away altogether, your business isn't left in a sling because you can't find anybody to maintain it or work with it. The maintainer specifically said that most companies were reluctant to support their project. And because it was simply available for free, so they saw no business reason to do so. And businesses exist in two columns. They exist in profits and they exist in losses. And so when you have a piece of software that is available for free, you're going to find it very difficult to convince that business to pony up some cash when they don't need to. 
And the way that we have handled that at AltaSpeed Technologies is when we quote unquote sell open source software, when we go in and say, hey, here is the software project that we would recommend, we just roll the pricing of making a small contribution to whatever the software project that they're using is. And and we just bill that to them as if they were using a commercial product. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything immoral about it. I don't think there's anything, uh, you know, there, it, it, it is simply encouraging people to do what what they ordinarily would do with a proprietary company. But just because the free and open source software is available at little or no cost to them does not excuse the ability that they should open their checkbook up and write if if they're using the software and benefiting from it. Uh, so the, so the, 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 uh, the safeguarding and the future of QT, I think this is a really creative solution in order to get there. And I'm hoping that over time, more people can pay attention to the licensing issue and come up with creative solutions on, on how, how we can keep things on Linux. Because like I say, I understand that it's a very confusing topic and I'm reminded of that every time I sit down at a Linux conference and try to have a discussion with somebody who either works with licensing or has a lot more experience with licensing than I do. I come to them with some concerns and I'm like, hey, all of this stuff seems like it's written by lawyers so that only other lawyers can interpret it. Can you please explain this, that or the other? And essentially their answer is, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it works. And then when I ask questions like, what can we do to give Linux a competitive advantage? The answer is essentially, if it's licensed with GPL, if it's open source, not much. It essentially, you're essentially banking on the laziness of people to port over to another operating system. And when the usefulness increases to the level that it does, oftentimes with software maintained on Linux, there is a large push to port to other operating systems. Again, 855-450-NOAH, that's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Darktable 3.0 was released. Now, this is a fantastic release. If you've not heard of Darktable, it is an imaging software specifically designed for editing photographs. And when I say editing photographs, I don't mean, uh, you know, photoshopping out, you know, the, the guy that photobombed your picture. I mean, light touches, light touches and, and small little changes. One of the ways that I shoot photography, in fact, the only way that anybody really should shoot photography, if you're serious about photography, is shooting in the, your camera's raw format. And Essentially, when you take a picture, the camera's imaging sensor, which is really what you're paying for in a good camera body, uh, captures the image that it took through the lens, which is the second thing that you're paying for when you're buying an expensive camera system, and encodes that information directly onto the memory card. So it's not an image per se, it's raw sensor data. And your camera's onboard computer then has the ability most of them do, to process that sensor data and render a traditional photograph like a JPEG out. The problem with rendering a JPEG out directly out of the camera is you're relying on the camera's interpretation of that sensor data to, to, to uh, compose a photograph, if you will. When you bring that raw sensor data into a program like Darktable, you then have the ability to make certain tweaks before the image is actually generated. So, for example, when you take a picture, all of the colors inside of the photo are referenced off of white. The camera tries to decide what true white is, and then based off of true white, 
renders all the rest of the image in the various colors. And so if you've ever taken a photo in, in, in really poor light and it comes out kind of red, or if you've ever taken a photo and it, you were previously taking photos outdoors and then all of a sudden you came indoors and everything looks kind of blue, or maybe the other way around. Yeah, it'd be the other way around. You're taking photos indoors and you went outdoors and everything looks kind of like a blue tinge to it. That's because your white balance was not set correctly. And every camera manufacturer has their own way about going about the process of setting white balance. But the truth is people get it wrong. I get it wrong. And so when you have that raw sensor data, remember, the sensor data doesn't actually interpret a color. It just captures it. And so the interpretation is done at the time that the photograph is rendered. So if you capture the raw sensor data and pull that into Darktable, you can go back in and say, here's what actual true white is. Now that we know what true white is, I want you to go back and, re and render all of these photos based off of the original sensor data that the camera uh, created. I have a Nikon D810, I think. And when it was released, one of the criticisms of it was that the particular image sensor that is contained in the, in the D810 he is part of a family that has a kind of a strange white balance and photos look a little bit different. And some people like it. Some people don't. I, when I'm taking pictures, like things to look as natural as possible and as soft as possible. And so I went through and fiddled around in Darktable until I came out with a template that allowed me to process the raw image data, a raw sensor data that came out of my Nikon D810 and generate photographs out of it. And applied that template. So now every time I take pictures with my Nikon D810, put the photo, put the memory card into my computer and run it through Darktable, it automatically processes all of those, all of that sensor data and spits out JPEG images, of course, retaining the original sensor data as well. But all of the photos look absolutely fantastic because they're designed with my profile in mind. And of course, I have different, uh, you know, rendering profiles for uh, various different lighting situations and, and, and so on and so forth. So I was excited when Darktable 3.0 came out because I knew it was going to be a major rework and Fire had a chance to play with it this week. And oh my gosh, the UI is incredible. It also makes it possible to apply full themes uh, to the software um, with their new theming system. And I think the default Darktable theme is great, actually. But if you ever wanted to change it, now you have that ability. There's also been a rewrite of the previous Picasa export module that switches it over to Google Photos. The addition of the RGB curve and RGB levels module. There's also a new basic adjustments module. There's new color picture uh, pickers. There's new watermark and there's split toning. Um, all of these uh, make for really professional software. Uh, there's uh, new shortcuts that allow for borderless editing experience. And, and if you, I mean, borderless anything is just awesome. Borderless video players are awesome borderless applications are awesome. They just give everything a really clean and sleek modern appearance. The undo redo support for tags, colors, labels, ratings has been redone. There's a new timeline view in light view. There's improved support for 4k and 5k displays, new tone equalization, um, just a lot of really awesome features. And uh, they have improved the tethering functionality is one of the things that I was really hoping to, 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 to get to, I really like the idea of not storing my, uh, again, I, I hesitate to call them photos because really it's sensor data on the camera itself. I'd much prefer just to send that through a USB cable over to my laptop and let my laptop handle the heavy lifting, let the camera just deal with doing what it does best, which is actually capturing the, uh, the, 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 the image data. And so 
the fact that this uh, application continues to garner more and more support. The other thing is, too, is I had a chance to talk to some of my friends that are into photography, as well as I read the review of Darktable on DP Photo. And to see, to see the, I, I guess, a open source application kind of take on the same where they start to treat this application as if it were just another competitor to Adobe Lightroom is really fantastic to me. And it really speaks well of the direction that photo editing and production at large is going on Linux. We are at a point now where we're arguing over which quote unquote professional tool we're going to use and not necessarily just that, Hey, here's the actual professional tool. If, you want to run it on Linux, if that's something that's important to you, then here's an alternative, right? How often do you hear that? I would not consider Darktable an alternative to Lightroom. I would consider it a direct competitor, if not uh, a successor. There are many people who have no operating system allegiance at all and prefer Darktable over Lightroom. It's just a better piece of software. So congratulations on a 3.0 release. release. It looks absolutely fantastic. Those guys do an absolutely great work. And it's one of the first applications I install when I uh, when I redo my computer because it's a really great application. So if you have any photo uh, editing needs at all, whether it's just you want to do some light touch-ups or apply some filters or uh, you know adjust the color a little bit or adjust the brightness, uh, these are things that you're able to do uh, inside of Dark uh, Darktable. And so go download the latest release, check it out. It's a really really great application. Our tip and trick trick this week is a Naming your screen session. If you've ever managed a computer remotely, then you know that when you go to do a time-consuming task, one of the fastest ways to start that task and then leave it run in the background is to use a program called Screen. And Screen allows you to run a terminal command or run a process and then disconnect from that process and and let the process continue to run. You can do that uh, with, with a program called Screen. So you run Screen, type your Whatever the command is you're going to do, then press control A, then press D, and it will disconnect from that screen session. You can come back a few hours later or, and I do this frequently, from another machine entirely, screen, tack R, it'll resume that screen session and it's good to go. Now you can do multiple screen sessions if, like, let's say one is copying a file, one is moving a file, one is transcoding a file, whatever. Uh, You can have multiple screen sessions running on the same computer. And the way that screen typically Uh, associates those screen sessions is it gives a screen identification process ID thing. And so when you go to resume a screen, uh, you know, session, it asks you which number you want to resume You type in that little number and then it resumes the, the, the session. Anybody that's been doing this for more than 10 minutes has figured out to remember the last few digits of the screen session. So you can remember which session is doing what, and not that that's a terribly difficult thing to do, but it isn't very elegant. Well, You can actually name your screen session so that when you come back to to resume the screen session, you remember, hey, this is the session that's copying all of my files. This is the session that is moving all of my files. This is the session that's transcoding all of my files. And you can see where each one of those processes are. So to do that, you're going to press control A the same way that you would if you were going to disconnect a screen session. Press control A then let go of both of them, then press the D key. If you press control A, it will get you into the command mode. You're going to type full colon and then session name, all one word, all lowercase, all run together. Full colon session name and then a space and then the actual alphanumeric tag that you want to give the session. So copying or moving or transcoding and press enter. And now 
when you go to resume your screen session, first you'll notice if you just type screen and have more than one session running, you're going to see that alphanumeric uh, alias right next to the process ID. And of course, you can still use process ID to resume the screen session, but you can also type in screen tack R and type in the, the, the name that you gave at the meaningful session name, and it'll resume your session. So kind of a neat little tip and trick. If you manage servers remotely like I do, especially if you're doing it mostly through SSH, uh, screen is a lifesaver for you, and this is a much, much cleaner way to organize your screen sessions. At the end of the program, we take your feedback. You can write in live at asknoahshow.com. Ray writes in and says, just wanted to drop you a line and say thank you for the last show. And he's referring to podcast uh, 158, in which we talked about uh, network lessons learned over 10 years. I've listened to it twice just to make sure I caught all the tips and tricks. Of particular interest to me was the networking tips. I'm currently trying to set up a PFSense firewall at home to keep control of some of my internet-connected devices, TVs, cameras, etc. And I've invested in some ubiquity gear, a few access points, and a managed switch. My question is this. I'm comfortable managing this gear on one network, but ideally I'd like to carve that one network up into a couple of different ones. Secure inter internal LAN, secure Wi-Fi, guest Wi-Fi, IoT Wi-Fi, sandbox. And that's where my knowledge falls down. Routing between these networks and managing these servers like DHCP, DNS, and multiple network segments. Can you recommend any reading material or some tips and tricks and best practices in this area? Thanks again. Keep up the amazing work. Ray. Well, let's start with this. The easiest, most simplistic way... Uh, for you to set this up is to set up a bunch of different parallel networks, right? You can set up a DHCP server and a gateway for, let's say, again, going back to referencing that episode, uh, I use IP scheme of 10.physicallocation.vlan or purpose.host. So let's say 10.1.10 for our, our, our data network that just general people are going to use for LAN stuff, uh, slash 24. And uh, so we'll have 254 usable addresses. You could just purchase a router, purchase a switch, uh, and 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 put in a DHCP server, activate DHCP on the router, whatever it is you want to do. And you could do that multiple times, right? And in fact, we do this inside of hotels oftentimes. If they want to stay PCI compliant, um, one of the ways that they do that is they'll, they actually have, they pay for a single WAN connection in. We'll put what we call a WAN switch. In, so it goes cable modem WAN switch, and then from the WAN switch, it will split out into one or, one or more routers or one or more security gateways, and then each security gateway goes to its own network. Now, of course, there with a, a proper security gateway, you can you can you know bring the WAN connection in through a single interface, and then you can have multiple interfaces that connect to uh, multiple different versions of your network. And so that's the cost-effective way to do it, and the way that it's done anytime you get into any anything with any real size to it. But if you're just starting out and you're trying to wrap your head around these uh, around these concepts, build out, you know, maybe two separate networks entirely. Then I would suggest you start with VLANs. Start by setting up your switch and maybe VLAN 10 is the data VLAN and maybe VLAN 20 is the voice VLAN and maybe VLAN 30 is your guest Wi-Fi. And to start, just plug your three different networks or two different networks, or however many you have, into the various different switch ports and assign those VLANs. And now at least you can tell an access point, hey, this SSID references this VLAN. And that you can go down and look in your rack and you'll be able to see three different routers or two different routers or whatever you have, right? So that's kind of step one. Step two, once you get comfortable with that, again, and this is assuming you have the budget to do this because I suppose to a certain degree, it, you know, there's some money involved in this. 
uh, the step two then would be actually starting to build out that PF sense box so that you could assign the individual network interface to the individual function. And uh, this is where some 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 reading will get you. Uh, and I, I can put some links to some Reddit posts and and some other resources that I've used in the past that are online. But really, it comes down to personal preference, what you want to what you want to do. Best practice says to segregate up networks and it, it, you want broadcast traffic to be as small as possible. My rule of thumb is I try to keep uh, broadcast traffic smaller than 500 devices on a given network. Um, and even that's probably pushing it a little bit. But you want to divide up your purposes, and you've done that. You said, I want guest Wi-Fi, I want internal Wi-Fi, I want a, a private LAN. And so I would just, I would lay out those those IP schemes. I would say 10 dot, you know, all of the physical locations, one. So 10 dot 1 dot 10, 10 dot 1 dot 20, 10 dot 1 dot 30, 10 dot 1 dot 40, so on and so forth, and start building that out. And then in PFSense, You'll actually structure those VLANs as far as how to get traffic from one to the other, which you mentioned in here. And you said you'd like uh, that's routing between these networks, routing between those networks. Basically, all you have to do is turn on uh, inter VLAN routing. And if your switch supports that, then inter VLAN routing is going to take care of that for you. If not, you can do it through the gateway. You can do it through PF sensor, through whatever your security gateway is going to be. And essentially traffic comes into the router and you do that with firewall rules and say, okay, when traffic comes in on this VLAN on this interface, if it's looking for this network, there's a route here and it's sending out over that interface. And so that can be done in PF sensor, microtech or whatever. But that's kind of how you would do that. Like I say, my the way I wrap my head around this, because I'm a very... I'm a very visual person and I'm a very hands-on person. It's when you start getting into anything virtual, it becomes difficult to lay things out and kind of keep things straight. At least it does for me. So I'm a big fan of grabbing a couple $15, $20 routers and just plugging them together um, in different configurations and mimicking as if I had a bunch of different networks all in my basement and then kind of hammering them out. Uh, do we have time? Yeah, we do. Dustin writes in and says, I bought a wise cam. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't delete my email until you hear me out. My use case, all I need to see is my porch in the driveway. We had some issues with vandalism and some people trying to get in my car and my neighborhood. I would never put an internet connector camera in my house if you don't call my family's Android devices. I want to, I went in knowing that I, these things are not super secure. That's why they're outside and I've used a password that is totally different from anything else. I got two wise cams for like 70 bucks and I bought some accessories to get them to power them. I can't buy one decent IP cam for that kind of money. I'm looking forward to your res- to your results with bargain IP cams, and I may be willing to move up according to what you find. At the end of the day, I know Wise is not going to be super secure, but when I look at my situation and my family with devices and the fact that I'm not a sysadmin by trade, I just like to tinker in my spare time. It does not seem to be worth to spend $500 plus on secure cameras. If someone is looking very hard, I'm sure they can punch plenty of holes in my internet or network security. I'm just trying not to be the low-hanging fruit. Thanks, Dustin. Looking forward to you destroying my logic. Actually, I can't destroy any of that logic. That You are the perfect person to use budget IP cameras. The, the, the biggest thing to me here is it's not so much about the, the security of the video itself. Every time it seems like we have this discussion, people focus on, well, it's just the cameras just outside. That's not really where my concern with the cameras are. That's part of it because you do have a camera in your house if your camera was in your house. But the bigger thing to me is you have a device that exists on the inside of your firewall. You've trusted that device. You've told that device, here's access to my network. So 
where my concern is, and uh, to be clear, I don't have any evidence that this is the problem, that this is a problem with Weiss. In fact, I don't have evidence that this is a problem with any IP camera out there uh, yet, uh, with the exception of height vision. There's pretty substantial evidence that there, that there is some weird stuff going on there. But with the rest of these cameras, the real concern is just that you've connected a device to the inside of your network. And so if these companies did have any sort of embedded firmware, anything that calls back out, much the same way Simple Help works, to be honest with you. We install Simple Help on a client's machine. It calls back out to our server, and now we have access to the inside of their networks. And you better believe that there has been times where a company has gotten sold off or purchased by another company or whatever, and those machines that were enrolled in our system that they no longer had knowledge of get put onto an t- entirely different corporate network, and we still have access to it. And so having seen that, I just get a little bit concerned. But all that said, again, there is a price to be paid in, in having cameras that you can just buy and put up. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. Central.